Welcome back. With me today on the other end is Jennifer McGruther. Rhymes with brother. Just got that out of the way. Uh, she runs the Nourish Kitchen, uh, the Farm to Table book and blog, and she focuses on Farm to Table. Her Facebook's got over half a million likes. Jennifer, you're very popular on Facebook, and uh, welcome to the call. Thank you so much for having me, Clark. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, that was awesome. So how, I'm, I'm just curious, like that's a big number for this sphere is half a million. Um, how did yeah. that come to be? You know, it's all very organic. I think that um, when you share good information with people, um, they tend to share it and they engage better with page. And so uh, it, it just grew and grew and grew organically as more and more people began to become engaged with conversations that were taking place. Um, I share a lot about uh, the microbiome, fermentation. So it's not all about Nourish Kitchen. It's, it's definitely about the entire sphere of... Um, information that's available out there okay and um so on the nourish kitchen then you know whether it be on facebook or the blog what kind of approach are you taking to health wellness nutrition what information are you, are you sharing you know, I come from a Weston Price background and am definitely a traditional foods enthusiast. Um, however, I think that that information has a lot of uh, crossover for many people in the in the broader community. Um, about 30% of the readers at Nourish Kitchen adhere to like a paleo or primal diet, and about 10% are vegan or vegetarian. So there's definitely crossover um, within that sphere, but I definitely come at it from a Weston A. Price perspective. Lots of emphasis on bone broths, farm-to-table, heirloom vegetables, and traditional methods of, of preparing and cooking foods. Okay. And so how did you start uh, with the Weston A. Price background? Like, were, were you just reading the books? <laughs> it was an accident, really. Um, somebody uh, turned me on to uh, an old form that's now uh, more or less uh, defunct uh, about natural family living and mothering. And on that form, there was a recommendation to make your own yogurt. And I thought, wow, you can make your own yogurt. You know, it was, I had no idea. Right. Um, And so we were making, uh, so that turned me on to traditional foods, Weston Price. And I was coming at it from uh, being a very, very, very sick vegan. Um, and I found uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, Dr. Price's book, and I read that at the same time that I read, I think, Diet for a New America, which has very contrasting ideas. And I found that the work of Dr. Price really resonated with me, and I, it was fascinating. Okay. So Weston A. Price, he was a dentist, correct? Yeah, Dr. Price was a dentist. He lived in Cleveland um, in the early 20th century, and he found that in his practice, many of the the children that he were seeing were experiencing um, malformations of the palate, um, dental decay, and he was wondering why future generations, this younger generation, was getting sicker and sicker. And he chose to travel the entire world and really analyze the diets of people who did not have access to industrial modernized foods. Um, and he found some really striking differences between traditional diets and modern diets and striking differences, um, between the traditional diets, uh, of people all across the globe, as well as similarities too. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, with the teeth, one thing that I was reading about Weston A. Price is that it's actually like a skeletal deformation. Um, yeah. when you, when you have the teeth all, uh, misaligned and so you know being a dentist of course that's his area of focus and so he's he's looking at these indigenous tribes or or modern people 
and realizes that uh, their teeth are deformed. And that's a big, okay, what's going on here? And, and I mean, of course, you know, like I had jacked up teeth. I, I still have jacked up teeth because I got braces and didn't wear my retainers. Um, so, it, you know, it gets passed, 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 passed. But when you trace it back, teeth are pretty much perfect. Yeah, it's fascinating. When you look um, at, at his images, the images he took um, while he was traveling, you find that even though these, these people who adhere to their tr- traditional diets didn't have access to things like uh, modern dentist, dentistry, they certainly didn't have in, in, access to uh, braces and orthodontics, they didn't even have access to toothbrushes, yet their teeth were in perfect condition, perfectly aligned, uh, very little cavities, um, And so he began to really analyze those differences between their diets and modern diets. And he found that their diets were higher in things like fat-soluble vitamins, that's A, D, E, K2, um, and lower uh, and and higher in things uh, like phosphorus and and various minerals. And, you know, it is a skeletal malformation. And a lot of that begins in, uh, you know, in during, during pregnancy, it's, it's related to maternal intake of uh, vitamins and minerals. And then, of course, that's largely formed um, by the time children are, are in their toddler years. And so that early nutrition, nutrition for, um, for mothers and ex- expectant mothers and fathers who, who want to have children too, as well as um, tr- uh, nutrition for small children can really make a big difference in health in the long run. Okay. So with the Weston A. Price approach and uh, the Nourished Kitchen, I mean, you're bringing in things like you mentioned with bone broths and fermented foods. I know one of them is uh, grains. They they do, yeah. is it fermented grains or how do they prepare grains? In the Weston Price tradition, uh, when you consume grains, they're, they're consumed soaked, soured, or sprouted. Um, so there's three ways. And the reason why uh, we do that is because uh, grains, as I'm sure your, reader, your listeners are, are fully aware, um, contain anti-nutrients like food phytate. Now, phytate, uh, food phytate can bind up minerals um, and prevent their full absorption. But when you undertake these traditional preparation methods like sourdough leavening or sprouting um, or um, soaking overnight in like an acidic solution, you activate enzymes. And those enzymes, food phytates, deactivate the anti-nutrients that can bind up uh, the minerals. So for people who tolerate grains well, it's important to, to, to consume them in, uh, in a way that they have been traditionally prepared, you know, soak, sour, so or sprout. So when you soak, sour, sprout them, that rid, gets rid of the anti-nutrients in there? It help, yeah, it helps to mitigate the presence of um, the anti-nutrient, you know, food phytate. So, but, and it does that by activating enzymes that deactivate that anti-nutrient. So it's pretty interesting. Okay. Cooking them also helps to uh, minimize uh, anti-nutrients. It so doesn't get rid of it completely, but it helps. So it's different than just eating bread. The way you prepare Absolutely. grains is very different. Absolutely. And what's fascinating is that um, sourdough leavening in particular is, is, is uh, very beneficial. So, for example, just as we see increased B vitamin production in in other fermented foods, kombucha, Mm -hmm. sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, yogurt, we see increased B vitamins. So, too, do we see that with grains that have been traditionally prepared through sourdough leavening. So, sourdough bread, um, because of the 
lactic acid producing bacteria um, is actually higher in folate. Um, folate, of, of course, is a nutrient, it's a B vitamin that's critical for women of childbearing age for its ability to prevent neural tube defects. Um, so, so sourdough bread is actually richer in B vitamins like folate. And then, of course, um, those bacteria, those, those lact, uh, lactic acid producing bacteria, they eat up carbohydrates. Um, and so this is, and as a result, they produce lactic acid. That's what gives um, sourdough bread its characteristic tartness. Mm. But it also reduces the glycemic load of that bread. So people who are consuming whole grain sourdough bread are, are eating a bread that is richer in B vitamins um, and richer and lower on the glycemic index than, say, a regular. Right. Because um, I, I imagine okay. the person listening to this who doesn't eat grains and one of the arguments out there, especially when eliminating gluten or whatever, is that grains aren't as beneficial to you and they don't really provide that much nutrition. Um, but what you're saying maybe is with soaking sprouting or uh, fermenting them that they can provide some beneficial nutrition and a substantial amount i think that they can definitely provide some beneficial nutrition um not everybody can tolerate certainly not everybody tolerates gluten and not everybody tolerates grains in general is the, is the gluten can, still in it when you do this fermentation absolutely. process oh it is okay it is um, now, keep in mind that there's some research out of Italy, some preliminary research that has looked into sourdough fermentation and its effects on gluten. And their preliminary research, you know, keep in mind it is preliminary, their research indicates that very, very long fermentation times in sourdough may help to um, deactivate uh, the gluten toxicity for some individuals with okay. celiac disease. I don't think that that's carte blanche to go out and eat sourdough bread if you have gluten intolerance or celiac disease, but it is promising. Um, and, and that research needs to continue. So I think that in general, if you're happy on a grain-free diet and you feel that that's really beneficial for your, for you and working for you, you know, you should stick with it. But if you choose to consume grains, I think it's important that you, uh, choose to consume them in a way that, that honors how they've been traditionally prepared. Because right. um, we see grains and grain consumption going back you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's yeah. fascinating. The counter-argument, if I was devil's advocate, would be that uh, it's sure. mu- mutated, you know, and that, and that like, Dr. O'Brien was on the show and he said the 50-50 rule, within the last 50 years, the gluten percentage has gone up to over 50% bigger. So now we don't have these like little gluten particles. We got the big ones and that's going to cause leaky gut and inflammation and higher risks of all that. So the, the, that is absolutely, yeah. absolutely concerning. And, and, and certainly I think that we should be concerned about the, what's happening to our food in general and grains are a great example about how we have hybridized and hybridized and hybridized them so that they bear very little resemblance to what they originally were. So this is why I think many people who tolerate grains should probably opt for something like, um, einkorn, which is the first wheat that was, uh, domesticated and used, um, by, by the early Spanish. It's, it's like the, the first wheat, you know, and then there's emmer and spelt. Um, there's also options like heritage wheats, those wheats that were brought to the United States, for example, um, with the first pioneers and the first colonists. And you can increasing, and those have not been hybridized to the extent of our super modern wheat that, that 
came about during the Green Revolution. So you have things like White Sonoran, which came over with the Spanish. You have Turkey Red. You have Red Fife. And so there are many heritage weeds um, that are not going to have quite that striking um, issue uh, that uh, modern weed that you find in the grocery store. Okay. Yeah, so we can minimize some of the issues. Uh, so this isn't the stuff like you see on the shelves and I mean like Dave's Killer Bread or anything like that. This is a specific kind of process. Right. It's it's super traditional. And that's that's what, you know, and I'm I love um, really looking into traditional practices, yeah. traditional and heritage breeds and heirloom heirloom varieties. And I think that they can provide us a lot of benefit. We tend to eat a lot of the same foods over and over and over again. And I think that that is just a general issue with the American diet. Um, wheat, of course, is definitely a culprit. Yeah. Didn't the Dave's Killer Bread guy go back to prison? I think I heard something in the news that he did because that was that was his thing is like, you know, he, he was in prison and then he got out and he made his bread. Um, and I, I read somewhere recently within the last month or whatever, you know, it's got that it's got the, like the big tattoo arm flexing on the front and it's in like all the Whole Foods. Yeah. And yeah, that guy. Um, and that was his whole shtick. And I think he I don't know. I mean, I got to look that up. I'll, I'll I'll try and do that. But uh <laughs> Yeah, I'm not aware of that. Yeah, yeah. I usually make my own, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, um, so, you know, being traditionally prepared with grains, let's talk about bone broths real quick. Uh, kind of set it yeah. up. Walk us through, like, bone broth 101. Okay, so if you can boil water, you can make bone broth. Um, and it's crazy because it's going for like $14, $15 a quart, and it's something that you can make at home for pennies. Yeah. Um, Farmer's market selling it. it for expensive stuff. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Yeah. I've been known to buy it uh, on occasion in a pinch. But um, so what you do is you take your bones. Now, if you are working with a chicken, you're going to roast that chicken first. And you want to use uh, roasted bones if at all possible. And the reason for that is that it increase, increases the depth of flavor in your bone broth. So basically, you take like the spent bones of a roasted chicken or a roasted turkey, Put them into a stock pot. Now, to this, you're going to want to add something slightly acidic. Now, many, many people use apple cider vinegar because, you know, I don't know, one person started using apple cider vinegar and then everybody puts it in their bone broth. Uh, But you can use other acids like wine. White wine is wonderful with chicken bones. Um, Cover it with water. Now, here is where things start to differ. You can also add, um, in traditional stock making, you add vegetable matter to the bone broth. So you might add mirepoix, which is carrots, um, onions, and and celery. Uh, you can have bay leaves and, and peppercorns. Or you can just leave it plain bones and, and uh, wine or, or vinegar. And I usually keep it as plain as possible. And the reason I do that is because I like to flavor my end dish um, how I want it to be flavored. And so I don't want the flavors um, introduced into a bone broth to carry over into the end dish. So if I'm making French food, it might be very, very different from, you know, using the same bone broth in Thai cooking or Indian cooking. So it's bones, water, and some sort of acid. Okay. Uh, and you boil it basically until the bones can crumble. And that's kind of what differentiates a, a stock from a bone broth. Stocks are typically... You know, they're essentially comprised of the same thing, bone water, um, except that they they are cooked for, for a smaller amount of time. Bone broths, um, when people make them at home, usually cook them into the, until the bones can be, you know, pinched uh, or soft enough to be pinched between the thumb or forefinger. Um, at that point, you strain off the broth, you stick it in the fridge, and... Um, overnight the fat will separate from from the liquid um and you can pull off that fat 
and you can use it to, to roast vegetables or something like that, or you can discard it. What do you do, what do, you the do with the bones? Since they're crumbly, do they get in the broth and you drink them, or do you throw them out? Some people will use an immersion blender and create kind of like a gravy with the crumbled bones. And you, you can do never, that? That's okay to eat? You can totally do that. You can eat those bones that way. Um, huh. That doesn't appeal to me in a culinary sense. Yeah. Um, but certainly in, in terms of nourishment, those bones are still going to have quite a few minerals. You don't extract all of the minerals from the bones. In fact, bone broth um, is particularly rich in protein and it has a moderate amount, you know, moderate to small amount of minerals. So you're really after the protein. And the protein that's in bone broth is um, it's, it's gelatin. Mm-hmm. And gelatin is you know, really good for the digestive tract. It's really good for the joints and the skin. Um, and it's a great source of protein in the sense that it's a protein sparer. So it helps you to get more protein out of the other foods that you consume. I've seen those, um, those in supplements, like a little powder yeah. or whatever, like the, like the gelatin powder. Oh, sure. And, and so, yeah, so you see a lot of um, like collagen peptides um, are taken as a supplement for a lot of people. They'll, they'll put it into, you know, the morning coffee. Right. Um, oh. or, does that taste? <laughs> does it have a taste? Is it salty? Minerally? Uh, no, no, no. It has no taste. Like okay. gelatin, when you buy it at the store, when you buy it online, is very heavily processed. Um, so a good gelatin will have no flavor. It'll be totally, completely neutral. Collagen peptides are a type of... Um, uh, collagen, a, a gelatin that has been um, processed and it will dissolve. Now, gelatin, um, like collagen protein and gelatin itself, will actually thicken. So, if you're using it as a supplement, you want to go for collagen peptides. And okay. if you're using it to, say, make a panna cotta, uh, to thicken a sauce, um, or to add bulk to something else, you're going to go for the collagen protein. Um, so, gelatin, so bone broth is naturally rich in, in gelatin. And so that's why it'll get very you know, wiggly and uh, gelatinous in the jar, yeah. you know, in the fridge. Yeah, yeah. When you, um, when you put it at room temp, not room temperature, but in the fridge, and you can almost like scoop it out with the gelatin. Or if if you do a crock pot, like yeah. I, I did chicken, like whole chicken in a crock pot and just left it for 12 hours. Well, of course, I'm not right. going to eat the whole chicken. So I put it in the fridge and I get it out and I can scoop it the next morning. And it's that gelatinous jelly. Toast. You could spread it on toast, you know, drink it with a straw, yeah. make a Slurpee. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people used to use that as aspic. So they would make like a really gelatinous broth and then um, they would take, you know, vegetables and shredded meat and then pour the the bone broth over Uh that, stick it in a cool place and then slice it and serve it on sandwiches. This is what aspic is. It was pretty popular in the 1950s, uh, tomato aspic, and uh, it began to lose popularity in the 1970s. Um, it'd be interesting to see if it makes a comeback, uh, with, with all this, uh, interest in bone broth and gelatin. With the hips, um, hipster yeah. movement too. That's the next totally. thing they're going to do. They're going to get into <laughs> traditional foods. They've already brought back neon and, you know, windbreakers and right. urban outfitters galore. They're going to get into the, totally. whatever that was called, the PB and J sandwich sure, with sure. the bone broth. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so so bone broth, the point is very nutritious, easy to do, and you can make it for pennies on the dollar. Probably one of the cheapest Absolutely. cheapest things. I mean, and so so do you get your bones from the farmers market? I've seen them go there for like four dollars a pound or something really cheap. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. So when I first started making started started making bone broth and working with traditional foods, this was like seven, eight, nine years ago. Um 
I could go to the farmer's market and they would be free. They, you would say, Oh, do you have any chicken feet for me? Oh, do you have any bones? And nobody wanted them. Um, so they would just give them, give them away to you. Uh, and so now you're seeing them go from anywhere from two to $4 a pound typically. And they're well worth it because they, they, again, there's a lot of protein in there. It's great flavor and you can add the bone broth to so many different things. So you can use it for braising vegetables, of course, as a base for soups and sauces, um, and, and like I, I like to do is I like to start my morning, especially in the wintertime with just a cup of broth instead of coffee. Um, and just a cup of broth with a little bit of garlic and parsley. And so it's really versatile and it can be used for a lot of, a lot of different things. So you go to the farmer's market, you pick them up there. Um, you can go to uh, whole foods. We'll even stock chicken feet and uh, chicken backs and necks. And then of course you can absolutely find these items online if you, you can't find them locally. Yeah, because I yeah I went to the Ballard Farmers Market here in Seattle, and uh, it's 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 really good. I mean, one of the best ones on the West Coast. Huge, yeah. humongous, tons of farms come out from Washington, and yeah, they sell the bones for I think it was about four dollars a pound or three dollars even, and they're just it's just giant beef bones, and you can yeah, see like the wonderful. marrow in it, and it just comes out all gelatinous and whatnot. Oh, it's so good. It's great. Um, anyway, to follow up, the Dave's yeah, the Dave's Killer Bread guy. I looked it up. He was in Washington, fifty one. He's the co founder, and he was charged on like assault or something. Um, so he got arrested again. Just for the listeners who are worried about that. <laughs> yeah, Dave's Killer Bread. Any, anyway, so we've gone over bread grains. We've gone over bone broth. Um, uh, let's talk about fermentation then, and and, and huh. the gut. That sounds like a fun one. And I'm really fascinated by it, for sure. I was just on antibiotics uh, from a foot infection I got in Thailand when I was traveling for two months. Mm-hmm. Um, and my whole foot almost fell off. So I had to get on antibiotics. <laughs> it was kind of like right. last resort, which, you know, it definitely made me more pro antibiotics because before you just heard the negative aspects of it. But when you actually see your foot go from like black and blue to normal and pink to completely normal in a matter of two weeks... I mean, you're kind of like hallelujah modern medicine, you know? Absolutely. In fact, I last year I had to take two rounds of antibiotics, and I'm thankful for that because, Very, yeah. I mean, they definitely play a role. I think the issue with antibiotics is for a long time they were really overprescribed. I know that when I was when I was little, you know, in, in elementary school, if you had if I had went to the doctor and I had sniffles and a scratchy throat, they would automatically give me antibiotics. They would take the test, you know, they wouldn't wait for the test to come back. I would get a round of antibiotics and, you know, a week later the test would come back. Maybe I had strep, maybe I didn't. Um, and so I think that that really did a lot to destroy just our nation's uh, microbiomes in many ways because they were just overprescribed. But, but the thing is, is that antibiotics you know, really are, they're life-saving and they have, they play a huge role in, in, you know, mitigating infection. Um, so we shouldn't discount that, but the question is how do you recover from antibiotic use or, or what can we do to build our gut microbiome? It's interesting. My husband and I just had our microbiome sequenced, um, which was fascinating. It's just really fascinating, um, to see that, uh, out there, the, the different kinds of bacteria and the ratios. Um, but fermented foods are really interesting. They are, they were kind of born of a sense of practicality, you know, 
our ancestors were were facing these long, hard winters without refrigerated refrigerations, no trucks to ship, you know, fruits and vegetables across the country. They had to make do with what they had. And so this is where kind of fermentation arose was a way to make use of all of that summer produce, all of that fall produce, make it last until the next harvest season. And so this is why you see a lot of uh, fermented foods all throughout the world. You know, cabbage is one ferment that you see everywhere. It's Kimchi, sauerkrauts. Totally. Crotito. Um, you see that it's, it's pretty um, global, the fermentation of cabbage, as is the fermentation of milk. Um, kefir, yogurt. Exactly. Kefir, yogurt, cheese, butter is traditionally fermented, sour cream, creme fraiche. Like it goes on and on and on. There's all these uh, different concoctions. In fact, in Scandinavia, they used to make a wine out of spent whey. Um, It's called, I think it was called blonde. Uh, Mm. I might be wrong. Uh, So, and, and, and so historically we ate a lot more fermented foods than we do now. Um, Canning, and freezing became popular uh, in the last 200 years or so. Um, and that enabled us to kind of shift away from things like fermented foods as a, as a method of preservation. But the basic, basic thing to ferment something, all you need is uh, something to ferment, something to ferment it in, and time. Uh, and I mean T-I-M-E, not, not the herb. And once you have those three things, <laughs> you can ferment uh, pretty much anything. So sauerkraut is a great one. You take uh, cabbage, you shred it up really, really fine. Um, you sprinkle it with salt. Uh, I use about two tablespoons of salt for every, I think, five pounds of cabbage. And then you knead it together until that cabbage releases its juice. The real important thing, and I know that when people are new to traditional foods and they're new to um, fermentation, it can be kind of a a learning hurdle for them to be able to embrace the the prospect of growing bacteria in their food on purpose, right? That's that's kind of nerve wracking for a lot of people. Um, so, so you create this environment where, um, good bacteria, beneficial bacteria survive and proliferate and pathogens aren't able to do that, um, because the, the environment you create is too acidic. So you take your, your cabbage and your salt and you kind of scrunch it up till it releases its juice, pack it down tightly into a fermentation crock. Um, you can also use a mason jar until that juice, uh, that's been mixed with the salt, Uh, submerges the cabbage. It's really important that anything that you're fermenting remains submerged in its own juice. Has that little layer about like a quarter inch, half an inch or exactly. Yeah. Okay. About a half an inch or so, a half an inch or so. Can you you use water if, if you don't have enough juice in there? Absolutely. So, so for something like cabbage, you're going to, you want it to create its own juice, but think about true sour pickles, right? They're not going to be shredded. So how are they going to create juice? So what you do is to create a brine of about, um, you know, a tablespoon or so of salt, Mm -hmm. uh, with water and simply pour it over it. So like sour pickles is about the easiest thing you can make because you can take your, your pickling cucumbers, stick them in a jar and you cover them with salt water and you seal the jar tightly and you come back in a couple weeks and you have pickles Mm. because those bacteria have eaten up all the carbohydrates in there and as and they have uh produced lactic acid and acetic acid for the the vinegar producing so i did i did sauerkraut and kimchi i do a lot of that and Mm -hmm. i noticed one thing um, one of the batches came out great and I did it on my YouTube channel and showed everyone. I just took a big bowl, you know, crushed it up by hand, did the salt, yeah. put it in jars and I left them 
covered with like a cheesecloth and it, it had oh. that like quarter inch to half inch layer of juice. Mm-hmm. And then, and that, that turned out great. Almost had this like fizziness to it. But the other batch that I did, exact same time, exact same everything, I used red cabbage for this, may have changed it, mm. left it for about three weeks to a month. Um, and I, I canned it in like mason jars, but I put the lid on. So one that was I really liked had more of a cheesecloth to it. And the other one, not so much. It was like too mushy. It tasted really pickly, um, had the jar yeah. on it, both in the same container and everything. Do, do you know what's going on there? Well, I find it curious that the one with the cheesecloth was the fizzy one because usually the fizz is created uh, when the car- you know carbon dioxide is is a natural product of fermentation, and it usually uh, our ferments become fizzy when they're in a seal jar and that that has no that hmm. CO two has no room to escape, no nowhere to go. Yeah. Um. So it's interesting to me that the fizzy one was was the one with the cheesecloth. So when you're making fermented foods. Um, if it's open to the air, like a cheesecloth cover would be, you're not only attracting lactic acid producing bacteria, you're also attracting um, acetobacter. Okay. These are vinegar producing bacteria. Uh, I, you know, people will go, people who are fermentation enthusiasts will go on and on about which they think is better and which method they think is better. And, and this is the only one right way. And right. that's the only one right way. You know, honestly, if you like it and it tastes good to you, that's the right way. Okay. You know, it, it's, there's certainly science behind fermentation, but a lot of it is art and personal preference. And so, um, so the downside, the downside though, to the cheesecloth is, I mean, anyone who's ever made kombucha knows if you even leave it a little bit uncovered, you go there like three weeks when you're ready to pull it and boom, I mean, there's living stuff that gets in there and can ruin the whole batch. You know, we're talking maggots and flies and the, like the grossest of the grossest looks like decomposing uh, animals yeah. on the side of the road in your, in your cupboard kind of stuff. Like, I mean, it's yeah. nasty. So that's the downside of the cheesecloth. <laughs> It is totally. So this is why I recommend generally for, uh, for our fermented vegetables to do it in a sealed environment. Um, because it's much less likely to become contaminated by things like mold, um, fruit flies and and things like that. So what I use at home is a Polish style fermentation crocs. They're, they're large stoneware crocs. Um, and they have a a lid and a well, and you fill the well around them with uh, water. And that creates this anaerobic environment. Um, and that environment prevents things like, uh, you know, the fruit flies and the molds and the stray microbes from contaminating your batch. And I found greater success with that method over time. Is it, is it the 15 liter one? The yeah, that's Polish a really one? big one. Um, one I would recommend if you're not ready to, to make 15 liters of sauerkraut. Yeah, I was about um, to say. <laughs> I'm looking around Amazon. It's like 200 bucks. That's a yes. lot. You're starting your own business if you buy that one. That's right. It's an investment. You've got to really like fermentation. Yeah. I recommend actually visiting Mark Campbell on okay. on Etsy. Mark Campbell on Etsy. He is he is um, a potter, a ceramicist, and he, I think he works out of Southern California. And he's got beautiful Art- crops. Whoa, yeah, these are great. They are really cool, and um, they're reasonably priced. And the best part is that they are usually in like one to two quart sizes so you don't have to make 15 liters of sauerkraut to yeah. last your family for like the next three years you can make a quart and see if you like it and, and that's, that's a good yeah these are gorgeous these look like something straight yeah. out of a hippie fest or like a folk right. folk life like this <laughs> this guy They're definitely has some tapestries stuffing. in his workshop yeah <laughs> right. 
<laughs> they're absolutely but they're great size they're a great size so you can make small batch ferments in that and it's got the well so that you can create that anaerobic environment so the two yeah. things that i look for when i'm making fermented foods or fermented vegetables um is an airtight environment uh like the one created in a crock and then of course um i look to make sure that uh all of those those vegetables are submerged in brine, and that yeah. creates the environment uh, that really supports the proliferation of lactic acid bacteria, um, and that's that's great. And other fermented foods, you've got kombucha, which you want to leave open in the air. You, ginger bug wants to be open in the air because you want yeast in there. Um, and you've got jun. Jun tea is another one. It's like kombucha, but it is so you need a scoby. Uh, and a scoby is a symbiotic uh, colony of bacteria and yeast that all work together, right? Um, only it's made with green tea and honey instead of black tea and sugar. And so it has a very light and delicate flavor. So for, for people for whom kombucha is too assertive, yeah. too vinegary, jun tea is a really nice al- al- alternative for them. Is, is, so is honey, is honey fructose? Um, honey is yeah. There's there's fructose in honey. Because I, uh, I heard because I heard that because um, I used coconut sugar once in kombucha and it oh. didn't work at all. It was terrible. And I was talking to someone. I think it was on this call uh, this show. And there, we were talking about why that didn't happen. And it was because uh, you can't ferment fructose. They said or something like that. Maybe that's a myth or yeah. There's a lot of myths in fermentation. Um, now. If you're using, um, if you're, a a SCOBY is a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast, right? And so they're all working together in the same environment. And so they become accustomed to that environment and they do better in that environment. So if you've been feeding them black tea and white sugar or black tea, you know, which is traditionally what what is used to make uh, kombucha, they're going to grow accustomed to that. So then to automatically, to switch them over to something like coconut sugar, you're going to see um, a degradation in that SCOBY because mm. you've altered their environment. It's like plucking somebody um, out of New York City and putting them in Kansas and expecting them to operate as, as they normally right. would. And that's right. a cultural shift. And that's what you see with SCOBYs, right? And so um, John T, so it's not that fructose won't ferment. Any sugar will ferment, like fructose, uh, lactose. All, they're, they're all fermentable. You know, they're, they will ferment. Um, it's a matter of, are, is that culture, is that symbiotic culture, uh, colony of bacteria and yeast, is that culture accustomed to uh, the environment that you've put in it, the substrate that you've put it in? Is okay. it accustomed to it? Okay. And so with John T, a lot of people think that honey is antimicrobial. Um, but it's it's only antimicrobial, you know, in its raw sense. When you mix it with water, um, that creates an opportunity for beneficial bacteria to do their work. So Jun tea, the SCOBY has been adapted over generations and generations and generations to eat green tea and honey. And okay. that's why it works. Okay. So fermentation, you got a lot of different avenues to go down. One thing I've never experimented with... Uh, fermenting wise, you know, I've done sauerkrauts, kimchi, kombuchas, uh, pickling, canning, all that stuff. But I've never gotten into uh, fermented milk products like a, a dairy or anything like that. And I've never gotten into the fermented grains. Um, are those yes. easier? Are those harder? Do those use scobies? Like, can sure. I are those um, on my level? Because I'm, I'm an idiot when it comes to fermentation. I'm terrible. <laughs> I ruin everything. So, 
Well, fortunately, there's some things that are really, really easy to do. Uh, so yogurt is one that is so easy to do. It's a wonderful thing. You know, so you get your starter, which is a mixture of bacteria um, and various different types of bacteria, and you mix it into your yogurt. Now, there are two different, different types. There's thermophilic and mesophilic. Mesophilic yogurts are things like philia, filmilk, um, a lot of Scandinavian varieties. And that the blessed thing about these things is that they culture best at room temperature. So you don't have to worry about temperature control. Yeah. You just take your starter, mix it with milk, leave it on your countertop. That's pretty good. And, can, and can, come back can, in a day. can I use my SCOBY from kombucha to do that? Will it work? I have never seen that work, um, but you can certainly see. What you want to do is use actually like a, a, a dedicated starter, and that way you know you're getting certain flavors and textures. Um, Cultures for Health, of course, everybody knows that's a great resource for starters. Um, kefir, kefir, we've got is a scoby. So kefir grains are a scoby. They're they are a mixture of bacteria and yeast. They're little like spongy things that look like cottage cheese. Um, and when you're getting fresh uh, kefir grains, I recommend. And, uh, kombucha camp and you you put the grains into the the milk you know cover them with milk leave them out for 24 to 48 hours and you have kefir easiest huh. thing you can make yeah that's pretty good i I've, I've read also that you shouldn't always take the scobies from the friends you know like a friend gives you a scoby you should be really careful because it's very important to get a specific strain of the correct bacteria because you'll be using that for whatever you ferment with so I've, I've heard also online that you can go to the store and buy one of those really good high quality like gt kombuchas for four or five bucks um, and pour it in a starting batch and actually make your own SCOBY from that. That's true. Um, if you get a really high-quality raw um, kombucha from the store, you can often make a SCOBY with it. Um, the challenge with that is that they're typically very small and flimsy, so I find yeah. that it's just worth it to go and spend the $30 for a high-quality uh, kombucha SCOBY. Um, I... I um, I use my my kombucha scobies come from kombucha camp. They're like this thick. They're nice yeah. and thick. They're reliable. Um, and the problem with getting them from friends is often people in the past have been using uh, throughout that that culture's history may have mixed it with vinegar or something like that. And so there have been cases where people's uh, kombucha has been contaminated with vinegar eels. They're a small nematode. Hmm. They are like, which is essentially a worm. Um, the worm doesn't. <laughs> The worm doesn't affect your or my health. It only affects the health of the SCOBY. And so it will eat up the SCOBY over time and, um, and cause it to no longer produce kombucha. Called it doesn't e- affect eel our worm? health. Eel worm? It's called a vinegar worm. Oh, yeah, I don't want that. You don't want that. So that's why I recommend you, you really find um, – I, I think it's worth it for my part to purchase from a good quality source. yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So switching gears a little bit, you know, going to your blog, The Nourish Kitchen. I know you have a book under the same title. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you have half a million Facebook users, probably pretty popular traffic base on your blog. What's been like the most trafficked post? Like what's, what's your popular best, best hitter? Absolutely. My bone broth post, um, it's just nourishkitchen.com slash bone broth slash, you know, bone hyphen broth, bone broth post um, gets the most traffic yeah. day in, day out. Huh. Absolutely. Uh, if you Google bone broth, it's usually one of the first few that pop up, um, and that has consistently been the okay. case. Sauerkraut, homemade sauerkraut, gets a ton of traffic, um, and that's just native from search engines, right? Yeah. But what I your find number, your number one, of- I just googled it. It's it's bone broth right here. <laughs> Look at that, you're number one on Google. 
Right. Put, um, put that on a plaque. There we go. <laughs> um, but in terms of posts that are really popular with people, um, I've got a homemade root beer post and um, that looks at root beer, which yeah. is this beautiful traditional American food, um, but how it was originally made. And it was originally made with a lot of foraged herbs, foraged roots, um, real sassafras, sarsaparilla, juniper berries, hops, and all of this, all of this goodness. And it was fermented. It was a fermented drink. A lot of our sodas were traditionally fermented drinks before we began to add, um, you know, sugars and high fructose corn syrup yeah. and carbonation to them. I just pulled that so one they up. Got that, their I'm, I'm trying that one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting. The the homemade root beer is a very it's very different from modern root beer. It's got bitter notes. It's more like a medicinal beer. Hmm. Um, but it's a really cool one and that always you yeah. know, people always tend to like that in terms of virality. Not number one on Google, but you know oh. it's, it's getting there. <laughs> oh man. So tell me a little bit about your book. What what inspired you to write it? What's it about? What can the listener at home expect if they pick it up? My book is called The Nourished Kitchen, just after named after the blog. And what I love, uh, what I wanted to do when I when I wrote that book was to be able to expand the breadth of knowledge about traditional foods and to 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 really um, explore that. So. In Nourish Kitchen and as a blogger, most of what I write is in, you know, 300 to 700 word snippets and that, and it has to tell the whole story. And that's very, very limiting. But in a book, you have the opportunity to really, you know, flesh things out and, and explain the ins and outs of fermentation in, in much greater depth or the ins and outs of broth making or why it's important to choose heirloom vegetables. You can do all of this in much greater depth. And so um, it's, a, it's a whole piece um, as opposed to individual snippets. And that was really um, exciting for me from an artistic uh, perspective. Right. And for the reader who, who looks into it, it, it gives a lot of information on farm-to-table cooking, on connecting with local farmers, and most importantly, it gives you a lot of information on traditional foods preparations. So sourdough, taking it from, you know, just a slurry of, you know, bread and, uh, excuse me, flour and water into something that is, uh, you know, really extraordinary, like artisanal style breads, bone broths, lots of fermented dairy. And, and, um, most of the veg, most of the recipes, um, contain lots of vegetables and lots of, you know, pasture meats and things like that. Okay. So some new stuff, if, if we're bored of the same old, same old kind of, you know, low carb, uh, high quality, whatever protein book, your stuff might have a little, um, experimentation that the listener can do at home that they haven't tried yeah. before. Lots of experimentation. You'll be able to learn how to use all the stuff you see in your CSI box or your farmer's market. And it's really an exploration of traditional foods. And, it, and it's organized um, not by appetizer or dessert or anything like that. Rather, it's organized on uh, uh, based on where your food comes from. Okay. So it really takes you back to the farm and shows you the whole process um, of how, how food is, is um, grown, with intention prepared with intention and then enjoyed with intention so you have a lot of recipes you have a lot of knowledge about fermented foods and traditional eating what are kind of maybe one or two resources that you follow or listen to um i love to follow uh you know, Mommy Potamus is one of my favorites for, for people who follow um, uh, Natural Family Living blog. She's a she's a great blog. I, I really enjoy uh, from for a culinary perspective, um, Food Fifty Two 
Um, I really like to uh, pay attention. Nam Nam Paleo, I mean, who does not love Michelle? She's wonderful. Uh, so those are great resources. Um, and I think that uh, Cook's Illustrated is a great resource just for becoming a better cook. Okay, great. Well, Jennifer, The Nourished Kitchen, um, is that thenourishedkitchen.com? Yes, it's nourishedkitchen.com. That's the best place to find you? Yes, absolutely. Awesome, Jennifer. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Clark.